Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, September 28th. I'm Michael Guidry, and for Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, two advocacy groups are seeking to intervene in a federal lawsuit over Jackson's water system. Then cleanup operations along the Pearl River are trying to help reduce pollution as water levels drop below average. Plus, we speak with a professor of anthropology about the state auditor's report and on how the state funds various college degrees. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Residents in Jackson are calling for more transparency in the water treatment operations for the city of Jackson. The city was deemed to be in violation of the Safe Drinking Water Act last year, and an expert in water systems was appointed by a federal court to correct those problems. But leaders with the Mississippi Poor People's Campaign and the People's Advocacy Institute say much of the decisions are happening behind closed doors. Danielle Holmes is an organizer with the Mississippi Poor People's Campaign. We have been very concerned about um, the safety and cleanliness of Jackson's water. We have gone through this for numerous of years, and in our time of going through this, we were always cautious with more water notices. Um, we were able to provide community with water um, when the resources were available. However, since um, third-party manager, interim third-party manager, has taken over, we, the community, has lost trust and being told that brown drinking water, black drinking water, is safe drinking water to consume. And so we feel like our lives are on the chopping block here in the city of Jackson. We feel like this attempt to take us out by the state um, of Mississippi, who has been very complicit in what has happened with Jackson's water as the infrastructure has crumbled. Um, And so residents need a voice at the table. We can no longer sit by idly why government agencies allow um, residents to be told that it's okay to drink unclean water, unsafe water, dirty water isn't clean. We've sat with experts, we've sat with attorneys, and we know what our common sense tells us, and that's not to consume water or to tell residents that it's okay to consume unclean water. 
In August of 2022, the flooding of the Pearl River caused cracks within the city's water system to resurface. The major disruption in service prompted the federal intervention. But issues had existed in the city for decades, and many folks had become used to frequent boil water notices. Brooke Floyd with the Jackson People's Assembly says people need to trust that it's safe to drink the water coming from their sinks. Right now and for a long time, um, our water has not been okay. It has not been okay for children to consume. It's not been okay for pregnant mamas to consume, for our elderly uh, members, for those that suffer from chronic illnesses and disabilities. And so what has been happening is our voices have not been listened to. They may have been heard, they weren't listened to. Um, And they weren't taken into account. Um, And I think that to be able to help residents voices and their concerns um, come to the forefront and to bring um, their voices to a, a to a speakerphone, so to speak, so people could hear them. Um, I have been able to hold people's assemblies throughout the city um, and be able to really listen to people and hear what is happening in their homes. It's, it's happening in my home too. Um, and know that they have called They have expressed these concerns and things have not changed. And now we know this is going to be a long-term fix or or situation that's not going to be fixed overnight. We understand that. These are decades and decades of, uh, you know, disinvestment, divestment from our city, from the state. And we know this is going to take a while to, to be fixed. But during that process, we deserve to know what's going on in real time. And we deserve to have clean and safe drinking water during that process. And so um, I'm happy to be here to help our residents get the support, um, the solutions that they need, and to provide any assistance along resources that I can help with. The organizations are now intervening in the federal court case to demand better transparency and community input. Michaela Hernandez with the Center for Constitutional Rights says people in the community should have a seat at the table for the water systems they rely on. And we suggested concrete solutions such as a community water board, community ombudsperson, local workforce development, um, and compliance with Mississippi open records and public procurement laws, which the interim manager is currently exempt from. Um, so we were trying to find more information sharing, more transparency, um, and to create a more equitable and sustainable water system. Um, and frankly, you know, the government has not done its job to build trust with the community after decades of state divestment and neglect of the city of Jackson. Um, our proposed complaint shares more details about the state's ongoing efforts in that to undermine Jackson's ability to govern themselves and to fix their crumbling infrastructure. Um, and these efforts with intervention are the community's attempt to bridge that trust with the government and provides an opportunity for all entities to work together in, some, in creating something that's sustainable and equitable and can also be replicated in other places facing water crisis, such as areas in South Texas and Baltimore. Um, this is, you know, Jackson's not the only place uh, facing a water crisis and it sure will not be the last. Um, and so we're hoping that this can create um, a template uh, for future fighting as well. Um, and so we're just really proud and honored to work alongside our clients um, to ensure that they have uh, that they're included in the solution to this water crisis moving forward. Community activist Rukia Lamamba says there are specific ways the city and federal government 
could accomplish this. So we want the EPA to hold public meetings and not meetings that are based on particular invites. We want open public meetings so that all community members can be present and participate. And that in these meetings, we should present any data proving an imminent and substantial endangerment that it has been abated, that those imminent and substantial endangerments have been abated. We want the EPA to order the state and Jackson Water to regularly publish monthly operating reports on all lead and copper rule compliance data, including sampling addresses, dates, results, and protocols. We need a list and a map of boil water notices that includes locations of water main repairs and replacements and pressure monitors. We want the EPA to offer technical assistance to the state and Jackson Water to ensure that boil water notices are issued to residents via text messages, automated calls, door-to-door canvassing, calls directly to neighborhood associations and social media posts, mailings, press releases, and notices shared with local media outlets. This is important. We're in an age where people don't get their news or their information from one source. People don't even normally get mail all the time anymore. It's through email. So we're asking that the EPA push for technical assistance and assist the state in Jackson Water and ensuring that we have um, notices that reach residents in all of the ways that residents need to be reached. Um, The same way when we're uh, implementing events that we want people to come to, we use various mechanisms to get people there. We also want the EPA to help increase community involvement, order the city of Jackson to employ a community identified ombuds person to meet with the interim third party manager, Ted Hennepin in Jackson Water, to meet with the city of Jackson and to meet with EPA monthly to represent communities' interests. Both the city of Jackson and the Environmental Protection Agency have agreed not to oppose the motion to intervene. Coming up each year, volunteers coordinate a trash cleanup along the Pearl River watershed. We'll have more on the clean sweep and what effects it's having. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you aren't near a radio, you can still listen to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. You can download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone or listen online at mpbonline.org. Family owned. You know, I respect my dad a lot. I know it wasn't easy when he passed the baton to me, but in the end, he realized it was the best thing for the business to sometimes look at things from different color lenses. Family Owned, a legacy leadership podcast, exploring family businesses who make up the backbone of the American economy. Listen now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or go to mpbonline.org. Hi, Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. Please join me and my colleagues for the Mississippi Arts Hour, where we have in-depth conversations with different creative Mississippians. That's the Mississippi Arts Hour, Sundays at 5 on Think Radio, or download it as a podcast. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Guidry. Once the state's most important river, the nearly 500-mile-long Pearl River has faced decades of industrial pollution and a growing trash problem. But as MPB's Michael McEwen reports, 
an annual effort to clean the river, removed an estimated 12,000 pounds of trash in just one day. Up the still headwaters of the Pearl River, several volunteers are paddling in search of trash scattered along sharply eroded shoreline. They make their way upriver amid a months-long drought felt in much of Mississippi. At four and a half feet in depth, the river is low, more than four feet below its average. The volunteers are bracketed on both banks by small, powdery white sandbars and alligator traps flagged with orange ribbon, both newly exposed by the still-falling waterline. Newly sloughed banks stand tall across the bend from where Ben Mullen and his wife, Amanda, supply those volunteers with boats. That's a good bit of trash already, huh? The two own and operate Pearl River Kayaks, a Lee County-based river outfitter, and have supported the clean sweep effort along the Pearl's headwaters all eight years. They're offloading boats for volunteers at the Lee County Water Park, which sits between the Ross Barnett Reservoir to the south and the river's origin at the sacred Choctaw Naniwaya site to the north. Expecting to work until dark, Ben Mullen says the yearly decrease in trash is what motivates them to keep coming back. It's gotten progressively better every year just because we're doing it and people are more aware of it. We promote it all the time, bring back some trash. We'll give you a discount off your rental for the day. Try to hand out a trash bag with every boat rental we do and just encourage it. Volunteers set out across an oxbow lake of flooded cypress brimming with algae. Their bright kayaks gliding between treetops and bumped on occasion by submerged trunks. But then the river opens, and recently formed sandbars jut into the river and show the signs and trash of old campsites, tent poles, spent firewood, and discarded blue tarp. With his kayak beached more than half a mile upriver on a wide sandbar, volunteer Dexter is combing the woods for trash with a garbage bag in hand. An avid fisherman from Brandon he says this is his fourth year paddling the pearl alongside his son in order to help protect it. Yeah, I got a beer can. I see a couple more cans I'm going to grab over there. And so far, just cans and paper. That's about it. I think last year we found the whole defreeze and brought back. A whole defreeze. How'd you get that on the boat? They actually just drug it back. As the crow flies, the pearl begins 190 miles north of its end at the Mississippi Sound in Gulf of Mexico. But when factoring in its many bends and turns, the Pearl is closer to 490 miles long, stretching through more than a dozen counties and draining more than 8,000 square miles. This year's clean sweep gathered volunteers at 25 locations along the watershed, including the Strong and Bogachito Rivers, some of the Pearl's major tributaries. Around 12,000 pounds of trash was removed from that stretch, according to Riverkeeper Abby Brahman. We are just making a really big difference and a lot of legacy trash and trash that had been on the river for decades now gone. And now we're just kind of doing, you know, like you clean up your house every every week or every day. And this is kind of our yearly just maintenance cleanup on the river. Historically, trash from highways and the river's many tributaries has collected in greater amounts further downstream. Brahman says through this comprehensive cleanup approach, collection totals from the last two years are significantly lower than those previous. If you're cleaning up downriver, you don't have to get frustrated about all the trash coming from upriver. We're all cleaning up all along the entire watershed, so it should help everybody out. Every community should be cleaner. Back at the Lee County site, locals like the Mullins say the clean sweep effort, even on a less popular stretch of the Pearl, has served a leading role in reclaiming it from prior neglect. 
That first year, I don't know, it was two and a half, three tons, so just from this section of the river. Last year, I think it was 700 pounds, and it's gotten less and less every year. They also say it's wilder, shaded on both banks by towering pine and set by the afternoon call of a yellow-billed cuckoo. As multiple generations of volunteers rest on the upriver sandbar with trash piled in their boats, all agree that the best way to love the pearl is to protect it. Michael McEwen, MPB News. Coming up, the state auditor issued a report claiming several college majors are ineffective. We speak with an anthropologist who disagrees. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Listen to MPB Think Radio at 10 on weekday mornings for shows about your legal rights, modern technology, car repair, and other topics of interest. Programs made by Mississippians for Mississippians on MPB Think Radio. You can participate in the local MPB Think Radio programs this morning with phone calls and emails. At 9 on Creature Comforts, we'll talk about your animals and the animals around you. Get answers to your automotive repair questions on AutoCorrect at 10. And at 11, Southern Remedy Kids and Teens deals with the health of your children. I'm Scott Tong. One year after Hurricane Ian devastated southwestern Florida, the fishing industry is still suffering. A shrimper who lost boats says some of his crew members are still living in tents on the beach. And one expert says the one-year mark is when people really start to struggle. Next time in Here and Now. Today at noon on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Guidry. State Auditor Shad White issued a report last week detailing what college majors are the most lucrative post-graduation, as well as the retention rates of staying in the state. He claims high-paying jobs are more likely to leave Mississippi are part of the state's brain drain issue and benefit from taxpayer funding without staying to contribute back. White also claims several degrees, such as those in sociology, are not effective use of taxpayer dollars because they do not pay as high of wages as degrees in engineering post-graduation. Kate Santeas is a Croft Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Mississippi. She says she began her time in college with a focus on research in the medical field, but ended up shifting to anthropology during her studies. The science, I was really interested in the questions of how do these discoveries, how does this impact the world? How do we manage it? How does it change um, how we live our lives? How do we understand the impact of things like genetic testing uh, and, and so on? With that, I realized that anthropology, at least cultural anthropology, um, allows you to ask those kinds of questions and allows you to combine multiple different skill sets into figuring out how social value, social change, et cetera, relate to technological innovation and other forms of innovation. And so I um, had originally thought about going to medical school and really just fell in love with the idea of figuring out not just the new techniques for improving human health or understanding um, human biology, but 
understanding also how those can be used and what impact they have on different groups of people. And University of Chicago accepted me to do what, what's called medical anthropology and anthropology of science um, based on my training, uh, my bench training as uh, in undergraduate. And so that's what I wound up doing my dissertation research on. And that is still what I am trained in, still what I research. And actually a large portion of what I teach, things like medical anthropology, uh, global health, the anthropology of drugs and pharmaceuticals to a diverse group of students, diverse group of majors, in terms of thinking about what are the social impacts, how can we understand this, how can we understand why people engage in certain practices or beliefs, and how does that impact things like healthcare provision? Elaborate on that a little bit, um, especially the, the this this med, this concept of medical anthropology in that field of study. Can, can you break that down a little bit and and kind of share what that entails? Medical anthropology is a growing subfield of anthropology. Anthropology is a very broad field, just generally meaning the study of humanity from sort of our evolutionary origins to um, forensic anthropology. People, you know, you'll see on CSI and things like that. Um, and medical anthropology is, is in there along with archaeologists and others. And we look at the impact of disease and medical practices in diverse communities across the globe, um, not only comparative medical systems for communities that might practice more traditional medicine, understanding how and why um, certain practices or certain herbs or, or whatnot are used, but also looking at our um, contemporary biomedical system and thinking about, well, are there certain practices that mean some people are excluded or are not receiving the more effective care? What are some reasons we see what are called health care disparities that we can perhaps figure out and try to, to, to remedy? What are some reasons that some people might be resistant to uh, vaccination or certain forms of mental health diagnoses? Why and how um, is that emerging and what does that say? why do people believe that how do we understand that and where is that coming from what does that say about society how can we engage in a conversation and figure out why these kinds of beliefs are important to the people that hold them all right thank you and that brings us to kind of like the 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 pivot point of the conversation which is um this recent uh, attention to certain majors at Mississippi's public institutions of higher learning. This is a result of this, the state auditor and a report that, um, that he says kind of details the economic impact of certain majors, uh, undergraduate majors on the state of Mississippi, and, and where taxpayer funding should go. Not necessarily what should be taught and what shouldn't be taught, but where taxpayer funding should go. I guess just kind of what is your response um, as someone in your field of study and someone in academia to this notion of valuing undergraduate studies on a solely you know, economic impact scale? Well, I think it's deeply flawed, first of all, um, because if we were to create and only fund things like engineering majors, there's no guarantee that those jobs would be in Mississippi at that level in the first place. I'm not sure that they are. And secondly, most of those positions pay more outside of the state anyway. But beyond that, that's not the purpose of an undergraduate education. It's not just about monetary value. It's about all of the other things that we need for functioning society. So, for instance, Mississippi desperately needs more teachers, well-trained, dedicated, and, and innovative teachers. 
this report implies that because those are low paying jobs, those are not, we shouldn't value education, right? We shouldn't value investing in our schools of ed so that we can train more teachers who can teach Mississippi's kids. If anything, what the auditor is saying is that we need to invest more in some of these other programs to help support Mississippi to have more thriving schools, to have more teachers and social workers and counselors and artists and all of the things that contribute to a vibrant cultural community so people wouldn't want to leave in the first place. Right now, those are what are systemically underfunded. A lot of people want to stay, but they find that they can't stay because the pay for jobs, particularly high-tech jobs like the auditor was proposing, is so much higher elsewhere. And not only that, but the other resources are much better. The quality of schools is better. There's more, uh, there's more to do. There's more uh, family supports and things like that. So I would say I think the auditor is going at this from a, a very narrow view and one that doesn't acknowledge the realities of what it takes to have a thriving economy that people want to stay in. Kate Santeas is the Croft Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Mississippi. In a Twitter post yesterday, Auditor White challenged those who disagreed with him, saying he wants better funding for programs he believes would contribute substantially to the state's economy. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.